You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. You know, in many ways, I would say that one of the most formative events in my personal development as a biblical critic and storyteller can be traced back to the very first time I watched the 1979 movie Monty Python's Life of Brian. Oh, I remember the scene. It comes very early in the movie, the very first scene after the opening credits, and it opens with a tight shot on none other than Jesus of Nazareth as he stands at the top of the mountain and delivers the opening words of the famous Sermon on the Mount. The camera does not linger on Jesus, though. No, we quickly pull back over the heads of the crowd, the crowd that we very quickly realize is quite extraordinarily large. We finally come to rest at the very outer edge of the crowd, amongst a group of listeners who are straining to make out the words being spoken by the great teacher. It is a scene that forces you to ask many questions. What did Jesus really say? Even more important, how did the people who listened to him hear what he was saying? How might he have been misheard or misinterpreted? It even makes you ask interpretive questions like, when Jesus said, Blessed are the cheesemakers, was it meant to be taken literally, or did it refer to any manufacturers of dairy products? In many ways, I would say that I am still there, at the outer edge of the crowd, wondering how those first-century Jewish peasants, day laborers, and slaves, who must have dominated the crowd, heard what he was saying. The Pythons attacked the question of how they might have heard the Beatitudes brutally. I would like to return, with a bit more serious, to another equally famous part of the sermon in Matthew's Gospel. The part about turning the other cheek. This is retelling the Bible Episode 6.12 On the Other Cheek Simeon was just finishing up a long day's hard labor when he heard the news. The other workers were talking about it together, excitedly. Apparently, the popular preacher from Nazareth, Jesus, had been seen passing through a nearby village the night before. People were pretty sure that he was headed 
in this direction. Word of this teacher had been spreading like wildfire throughout Galilee in recent days. It was said that he had performed wonders, casting out demons and healing the sick. But many more were attracted by the things that he said. He had a reputation for telling stories that made you think and that made you look at things very differently. It was also said that he dared to say the things that everyone else was afraid to say. Because of that, Simeon decided that he would do whatever he could to find this man and hear him out. But first, he had to get paid. In a way, he was very fortunate that such a thing was even possible for him today. There had been too many days lately when he didn't get paid. He, like so many others, lived at the mercy of the landowners and in hopes that they would be in need of someone to work in their fields. Every morning, even before the sun rose sometimes, he and his fellow laborers would gather in the local marketplace in hopes that a taskmaster would arrive looking for workers. The working conditions were brutal. They would be sent out into the fields to cultivate, to plant, to weed, to harvest. They would work from the first light of the morning until the sun went down often expected to work even through the worst heat of the day. And for that, if all went well and the taskmasters were pleased with what they had done and what they had accomplished, each laborer could expect to be paid the going rate, one denarius a day. It was not enough to live a good life to live the life that Simeon believed that his God wanted his people to live. But, if they were careful, it was enough to survive on. So, Simeon had been grateful that morning to get hired for the day. That gratefulness was tempered a bit, however, when he discovered where he was being taken to do his work. He knew this field, knew it all too well. It was the farm that had once belonged to his own family. For generations they had preserved it and passed it down from father to son to grandson that is, until the generation of Simeon's father. Then, as a result of a couple of bad harvests and the increased burden of taxation imposed by Herod and the Romans, the family had fallen behind. Their debts had grown until it had gotten so bad that the very possibility of them paying their way out became a grim joke. They had been somewhat fortunate, compared to others at least. 
No one in Simeon's family ended up being sold into slavery. But the creditors did seize their ancestral land in foreclosure. Ever since, they had all been forced to do things like work as day laborers, just to survive. As a result of all this, Simeon had been in a bad mood ever since he had started working on this day. Every basket he filled, he could only think of how that grain should have rightly belonged to his family. He could only think of the security it could have given them, what they might have been able to save for the future, and what he might have been able to pass on to his children some day. And yet here he was, unable to do anything more than exchange the labor of his body for a little bit of money to make it through the day. And the best that he could hope for was that he might be paid a fair wage for all of the work that he put in. Even the worst day will come to an end eventually, though. So, as the sun began to set, Simeon found himself standing in line, together with the other workers, waiting to be paid his denarius. There was a man who was waiting just in front of him. He had worked with him before, in other fields, but didn't know him well. He seemed to be in some distress, and so he asked him what the problem was. This man, his name was Joses, explained that he owed some money to their employer that day. He had bored it the week before, when his son had fallen sick, and he had needed some medicine. He was supposed to pay it back today. Right now, in fact, but of course, he didn't have it. He was dreading what was about to happen, and Simeon understood why. Finally, Joseph's turn came, and he stepped forward. He patiently explained to the overseer that he didn't have his master's money today, but that he would get it soon. Somehow, the taskmaster, who had been expecting this, just laughed. And then he proceeded with the action that his master had told him to take. He demanded that Joses give him his cloak, and that he give it to him right away. Joses didn't have any choice. Seeking to hold on to some sense of dignity, he took off his cloak and slowly handed it over. Now, Joses, like most people in his situation, only had two items of clothing to his name. He wore a tunic to cover his body and a cloak over top 
that was it. And the cloak served double duty, too. It not only protected him from the elements during the day, but it also served as his blanket during the night. In fact, Simeon was aware that, for this very reason, there was an ancient law among his people that, when a creditor took a man's cloak as a pledge against debt, that creditor was obliged to return the cloak every night so that the man would be able to sleep. But apparently, such ancient laws could be routinely ignored these days. This realization, together with all of the frustrations he'd suffered all day long, kind of sent Simeon over the top. He began to do something that he would never do under normal circumstances. He was not normally such a fool. But he began to curse the taskmaster. He cursed him in the name of Yahweh. And then, for good measure, he cursed him in the name of Baal and Zeus and Isis and every other god that he could think of. Once he got going, Simeon was kind of impressed with his own knowledge of such deep theological matters. But the supervisor became enraged as he listened to this litany of curses. His face became dark, nearly purple. So angry was he. He was not about to stand there and take this in front of everyone. And so he did what he had done many times before. With a practiced motion, he raised his right hand across his body and dealt Simeon a backhanded blow upon the right side of his face. He hit him so hard that Simeon fell to the ground. Simeon saw stars as he lay there on the ground. He raised his hand to his cheek, and he could already feel the welt. He knew that that was going to leave a mark. There was something familiar to the sensation. Simeon had been struck many times in his life. It was something that simply went with his station in life. And the experience had almost always left him feeling the exact same pain on the exact same place on his body. When he, or people like him, were struck, it was almost always upon the right cheek. There were a couple of reasons for this. When somebody struck someone like Simeon, they were usually striking him in order to demonstrate their dominance and to tell the world that he was their inferior. The best way to do that was, of course, 
with a backhanded blow. To strike somebody with the palm of the hand or even with a closed fist was to strike somebody as an equal. And so to deliver such a blow to a slave or to a laborer was basically to loudly proclaim to everyone around you that you considered yourself no better than them. Nothing could destroy a freeman's honor and standing in society faster than that. Of course, that still left the possibility of somebody delivering a backhanded blow with the left hand. Such a blow would fall to the left cheek. But, of course, Simeon knew that that was something that would never happen. It had been deeply ingrained into him ever since he was a child that he should never intentionally touch food or another person with his left hand. The left hand was to be reserved for other uses. I mean, after all, what else could a man use in order to clean himself after going to the toilet but his left hand? So, basically, if someone did strike somebody else using their left hand, they were basically declaring that they were entirely uncouth and uncivilized. They were showing themselves to the whole world to be little better than an unclean animal. So, yes, it was the right cheek, always the right cheek, that received the abuse. Indeed, the expectation was so built into Simeon that by this point in his life, every time somebody who had some authority over him made a sudden move, his reflex was to flinch by pulling back and to the left, back and to the left. It was the dance he did to make it through his days. After he left the field, having been left unpaid for this day's labor, of course, Joseph found him. He berated Simeon as he stood there wearing nothing but his tunic. Why did you do that? Joseph wanted to know. You know it will never change anything if we stand up for ourselves. Not even when we have the ancient laws on our side. Nothing will ever change. Something has got to change sometimes, though, doesn't it? Was all that Simeon could think to say in response. But as he said it, 
he remembered what he had heard about the preacher who was passing through their area. It had been said that he did teach about change, about the possibility of another kind of kingdom, a kingdom that would be different from the one that Herod ran. He told Joseph about what he had heard, and the two men decided that they would forego looking for work the next day, and they would seek out this teacher. All of a sudden, the possibility of finding a little bit of hope for the future seemed much more important than whatever measly sum of money they might be able to earn for the day. And so it was that early the next morning, after a fitful sleep, the two men set out together. As he had expected, Simeon's cheek sported a lovely purple bruise. Joseph's shivered in his thin tunic in the cool morning breeze. But they were determined to follow through with their plans. They listened to the rumors that were flying around the center of the village and soon found themselves following a growing crowd of people who made their way to one of the bigger hills that lay on the outskirts of town. The two men pushed their way through the crowd and managed to end up standing in the front rank. And there, they finally saw him, Jesus of Nazareth, surrounded by some of his closest followers. There was nothing particularly striking about the man's appearance. He had the look of a fairly ordinary Jewish peasant. It was only when he began to speak that they found themselves drawn into rapt attention. He spoke with an authority and a sense of assurance that made you think that whatever he was saying, it mattered. But then they noticed that he had turned to a new topic, and their hearts began to race. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. He paused, and waited until everyone was practically leaning forward to hear his thoughts on such a teaching. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer, he cried. As he had no doubt expected, this statement provoked a big reaction. People called out in dismay, telling him that he ought not to teach such foolishness. How could he say such a thing? Resistance was not futile. There had to be times when resistance was necessary. Jesus didn't respond to these complaints, 
what he did do was turn suddenly, and his eyes met those of Simeon. Then the teacher's eyes dropped to focus on Simeon's right cheek. Of course, everyone wondered what Jesus was looking at, and they all started straining to see what it was about Simeon's face that was suddenly so interesting. And since the purplish bruise was hard to miss, everyone understood immediately. Jesus raised his right hand and lightly, ever so lightly, brushed it against the cheek. Simeon felt a strange tingling. It wasn't that the pain in his face just disappeared. He actually felt as if he still needed to hold on to that pain for a little longer. But he certainly found that the pain was easier to bear. Jesus' next words were spoken softly, but the crowd had fallen so quiet that everyone still heard him say, If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Simeon looked up sharply, tears filling his eyes. But Jesus had already moved on to look directly at Joseph beside him. Jesus looked at the other man. Joseph had been very self-conscious ever since he had entered into the crowd. He knew that he was not properly dressed. He could feel everyone judging him for it. But as Jesus looked at him now, he didn't feel any judgment. In fact, he finally felt as if someone had really seen him and understood him, understood everything that had brought him to such a condition. But when Jesus said, And if anyone wants to sue you and take away your cloak, give them your tunic as well, he was puzzled and wondered about what such advice might mean. But Jesus had already turned back to the crowd as he went on to say, And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Jesus said many other things that day. Then, after speaking, he spent a great deal of time talking to individuals in the crowd and offering them healing, hope, and perspective on personal problems. But, as you can imagine, 
It was the words that Jesus had spoken directly to them that stayed most with Simeon and Joseph as they walked away. They were still not quite sure what to do with the teacher's advice. And so they spoke together about what might have happened had they acted, as Jesus had said, on the previous day. What would have happened, do you think, if I'd gotten up yesterday and insisted that that man strike me on my left cheek? Simeon asked. What would he have done? Oh, I saw the look on that man's face, Joseph said. He wasn't thinking. He was filled with rage. I think he would have punched you with his fist. He would have hit you a lot harder than the first time. Yeah, he might have even knocked me out. But how long do you think it would have taken him to realize that he had just treated me like an equal in front of everyone? How long would it have taken him to realize that he had just done more damage to his honor than to mine. I don't know, replied Joseph. I'm still trying to figure out what would have happened had I given that man my tunic as well as my cloak. I mean, I would have been left standing there stark naked. What would that have accomplished? Well, said Simeon, I know that would have reflected badly on you, but don't you think that that would have made him look even worse? I mean, everyone would have understood that he was the one who was causing the offense and dishonor in the community. What's more, it would have driven home the fact to everyone that what he was doing was against the law of Moses. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Joseph scratched himself thoughtfully. But still, even if it hurts them more, we still pay a lot for such a small victory. Yeah, I know, Simeon agreed. But don't we pay a lot no matter what we do? I mean, it certainly would have cost us even more if we actually tried to fight back, as much as we talk about it. And we wouldn't win that way. You know that we wouldn't. And sure, one small win for you or for me doesn't amount to anything. But if enough people started reacting like Jesus says, maybe that would actually start changing things in this benighted kingdom of Herod's. Maybe we would start to see something so different that you could call it. What was that name that Jesus used? the kingdom of God.
Yeah. The kingdom of God. I can get behind an idea like that. At this point, the two men found themselves overtaking a pair of soldiers. They were members of the local auxiliary forces. While they were not really legionaries, these forces were closely allied to the legion that was based in Syria. Herod's kingdom, the Tetrarchy of Galilee and Perea, was technically not considered to be part of the Roman Empire, but everybody understood where Herod drew his power and authority from. They also understood exactly who benefited the most from Herod's policies and actions. These troops were frequently seen on patrol throughout the region. They were not here to protect the people. In fact, they were only too happy to abuse and exploit the people every opportunity that they could find. They were here to serve as a constant reminder of what the alternative was if the people even thought of any kind of rebellion against Herod. These two soldiers had clearly been on patrol all day with their full kit and packs. They were tired and in a bad enough mood to take out their frustrations on the two poor Galileans who had just passed them. One of them called out in broken Aramaic. Hey, hey, you, uh, you, you peasants, you. Take packs of us. You carry. You must carry one mile or, or bang bang on the head head. Simeon and Joseph looked at one another thoughtfully. Turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. These are sayings of Jesus that are so famous that they are regularly repeated. But the words themselves are usually repeated outside of the original context, which may be essential to understanding them. The culture that Jesus would have lived in, the culture that pervaded much of the ancient Mediterranean world, was very different from the culture in which we find ourselves. It was largely based on honor and shame. Your position, standing, and status within that society were all based on complex calculations that placed you someplace on that scale between the two extremes. In such a culture, Various things that you did, or that were done to you, 
things that to us might seem quite inconsequential could have some devastating impact on your position within your society. So, in the society where Jesus found himself, it mattered. It mattered how you spoke to somebody else, how you touched them or struck them. It mattered who was the cause of somebody becoming naked in public. And it made a difference when somebody did not lay down the load that you had forced them to carry for you when you told them that they could. And Jesus seems to have had an incredible ability to not only understand how these things worked in his culture, but also how to use them to offer the ordinary folks who came out to hear him ways to use these aspects of their culture to act in concrete ways to establish this thing that he called the kingdom of God. Of course, since we live in a very different culture, we cannot simply take the specific actions that Jesus suggested and expect them to accomplish the same goals today. We would have to put in the work to figure out what a similar sort of action would look like today. But I suspect that we would have understood almost without even thinking about it had we been actually there in the crowd on that day. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks. And yes, please leave a review on your podcast provider to help other people find and appreciate this podcast. The theme music for the podcast is Ada. And the mood music for this episode is Colossus. The music is by Kevin McLeod, licensed under the Creative Commons, and can be found at incompetech.com. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible, on the Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.